Hello, and welcome to RD and the Inbetweens. I'm your host, Kelly Priest, and every fortnight I talk to a different guest about researchers, development, and everything in between. Hello, and welcome to the third in our series on decolonising research. For this episode, we hear from Dr. Faluka Adabisi from the University of Bristol in her keynote, Decolonisation and Research, Finding and Unsettling Your Why. So I've been asked to give this keynote, which I have titled very, very roughly, uh, Decolonisation and Research, Finding and Unsettling Your Why. So the my aim here is to talk about, so try and give a rough definition of decolonization, what decolonization is, what decolonization is not, what does that word then mean for research as a a sort of broader concept uh, and sort of reflect on the ways in which the relationship between uh, sort of decolonization, colonization, colonialism, coloniality, how that relationship or what it has resulted uh, uh, to or in, in terms of research and how can we think beyond uh, those sort of that relationship or that that uh, nexus. Uh, I'm going to attempt to speak for about 30 to 35 minutes. It never entirely works well, so maybe 40 at, at a push and then uh, leave room for questions. Since I'm completely in charge, uh, you can put questions in the chat, so I'll come back to them once I, I finish. I am going to be talking, uh, you know, my area of expertise is mostly law, so I'm going to be talking uh, to a certain extent at a particular level of abstraction, so it, I would really be, uh, so I really look forward to the types of questions you will have pertaining uh, to your own sort of areas of expertise research that you are uh, doing. Uh, so before I go into this, I just want to thank uh, Kelly Louise Priest for inviting me and for sort of supporting my ability to come here uh, uh, and uh, speak on decolonization and research. I also want to recognize and acknowledge that the very nexus that we're talking about, the relationship between coloniality, colonialism, colonial logics and research um, has produced certain harmful practices, the certain people who have been the object of unethical research across time and space. And I hope that our conversations today will maybe begin to uh, allow us to do justice to their lives. So I'm, yeah. So I'm gonna start by thinking through or sort of talking through this uh, um, focus here with an anti-colonial frame. I do struggle a bit, even though I write a lot on decolonization, I do struggle a bit with what exactly we're trying to say. So I'm really thinking through an anti-colonial frame and suggesting that the enfolded logics and praxis, the ways in which colonization and racialized enslavement have operated, uh, the, these very logics were produced from and have produced an uneven and unequal world. And as researchers, we must not only uh, we must ask not only that we research the truth of that production. So, what exactly did uh, racialized enslavement and what exactly does 
continuing or ongoing uh, colonialism entail, but also question how our own logics, our own theories and praxis, the things we do as researchers, what part do they continue to play in the production, maintenance and reproduction of this unequal uh, world? And why exactly do we research? It's definitely not for the money, uh, considering how much researchers are not paid. So why exactly do we do research? What world do we want to research the knowledge that we produce? What world do we want it to produce? The world we have or a new or different world? Uh, I often describe the world we have as a world of scars, smudged fingerprints and broken bones. So is it possible considering the standards of our disciplines, the structures in which they exist, the world in which it is embedded. Is it possible for our research, the, what we research and how we research to change the world? So when I say thinking through the break, I mean, how do we think through this reproduction? How do we break this uh, and disrupt this cycle? So very briefly, I want to start with you know, what is not decolonization. So very often, and I'll come back to this in a few slides, uh, the phrase decolonizing our research is used and I tend not to want to use it. Uh, and a lot of times when people use these sorts of phrases, phrases, they're talking about sort of making research more inclusive, ensuring that we've got the right citations. Uh, so there's a conflation between our use of decolonization as a word uh, and uh, things like equality, diversity, inclusion, representation. Um, and that's not to say that equality, EDI, and representation are bad things, but just that they're different things. There are certain registers that decolonization should call to mind, and sometimes they're not the same registers. But having said that, there is an overlap, obviously, between decolonization and EDI, in the sense that um, Sometimes EDI can be used as a means to achieve decolonization or a measure of uh, success of what we're doing. But essentially, when we're thinking about decolonization, we're thinking about other ways of thinking, being, and living in the world. So we should be careful not to conflate one with the other. So having said what decolonization is not, uh, I then am sort of uh, forced or have put myself in a sort of tight spot of having to define decolonization. And I find it difficult uh, to define decolonization. Uh, but one way to think about it is uh, so, sort of lots of writers, for example, Sylvia Winter, uh, Anibal Quijano, uh, Nelson Maldonado Torres, and so many others, they put the inception of colonialism slash coloniality around the 15th century, so 1492, 1444. And what they, you know, that uh, sort of date is the supposed discovery of the Americas, you know, these voyages of discovery, not just the Americas, but also uh, the voyages to uh, the Southern Cape of Africa, uh, the Western coast of Africa. So it, at that particular time, you have this uh, almost meeting, this uh, confrontation of two different ways of living. The, this confrontation, therefore, uh, it has been suggested, leads immediately to a repudiation of the world in, uh, the world in which, uh, which it introduces, and that is what we define as decolonization. 
or that's what can be defined as decolonization. So to put it differently, we can sort of define decolonization as an immediate continuing and stubborn refusal of the colonial conditions of domination, dispossession, and dehumanization that were introduced uh, in the 14th century. But it's also important to note that these uh, sort of encounters, these colonial encounters occurred in different contexts and were deployed using different means and tactics, all of them, you know, political and epistemic and social and legal and so many things. And therefore, decolonization or uh, the refusal of these ways of thinking, being and doing uh, in the world um, have always, you know, been context dependent. So the concept of decolonization responds directly to the sort of the ways in which colonial logics were introduced in that particular context. And that's why I would define or describe decolonization as a set of strategies to refuse the, uh, apart from among other things, political and epistemic strategies of ongoing uh, colonial conditions. The other thing to point out is that because it's a political project of racialized peoples, indigenous peoples, and colonized peoples, it's very difficult to suggest that in the global north that we can take uh, any control of the logics and praxis of decolonization. So it runs from the global south northwards. It has existed. It's an immediate and continuing refusal from the 15th century of the ways of being and thinking, doing of colonialism, which means that it's important to understand what these sets of strategies or what this set of strategies is responding to. So if we're saying decolonization is a set of strategies responding to the introduction or the inauguration of colonial conditions of life, what exactly are these colonial conditions of life and how are they inaugurated? So, uh, I use the words colonialism and coloniality interchangeably to distinguish it from colonization. So colonization would be the um, administrative control of territory. So the actual spatial temporal administration of territory, but colonialism or coloniality, according to Anibal Kihano, who uses the word coloniality, remains the most general uh, form of domination in the world today. So he talks about the colonial matrix of power, which sort of at its base, the social category of race is introduced as a key uh, mode of classification or a technology of power to create a hierarchy of humanity. That hierarchy therefore also relates to epistemologies, to normativities, to ontologies. And I'll come back to this uh, in, uh, in a moment. So you have on the slide there, uh, a panel. So this is um, taken from South America, where uh, the hierarchy that was created was uh, sort of a, a range of 16 different races and hierarchies of humanity. Um, Nelson Maldonado Torres talks about, you know, this ongoing colonization, uh, sort of colonialism, coloniality, uh, and distinguishes it, distinguishes it uh, from colonialism, uh, from colonization. Sorry. So he says that coloniality refers to the long-standing patterns of power that emerge uh, and they um, sort of, they are produced by or maintained alive in books, criteria for academic uh, performance. And essentially this uh, 
concept of coloniality is constitutive of what we understand as modernity. So uh, Maldonado Torres argues that as modern subjects, as subjects of modernity, we breathe coloniality all the time and every day. So our work, when we talk about decolonization, we have to understand that the relationship between coloniality and modernity is integral to the work that we produce, the world we research, the language in which we use, the methods, they're all produced by colonially coded logics that can be, in certain cases, made invisible because you know, that's just the world we live in, right? So the problem, therefore, with this, you know, breathing coloniality every day and all the time as modern subjects is that because of the hierarchy created, the epistemic hierarchy of humanity that has been created, their particular bodies, racialized bodies, gendered bodies, um, sexualized bodies, uh, bodies that are sort of uh, non-heteronormative, uh, sort of economically disadvantaged bodies, all these uh, sort of groups of bodies are not structured within our knowledge system, have not been structured within these knowledge systems uh, as knowers. So one could ask then whether or not the vocabularies, these sort of uh, markers of modernity as uh, Nelson Maldonado Torres is, uh, you know, talking about things being maintained alive, the vocabularies, categories of thought, uh, concepts that are employed by our normative uh, social science, you know, in, in my own case, are they an effective means for making sense of or understanding research in these non-Western worlds? Uh, as Oyeronke uh, Oyewumi suggests, we've got Western theories and African subjects, and these things do not all, always uh, sort of resonate or collocate. So we then are attempting within most of our research to um, explain the ways of being and thinking that don't arise or are not uh, predicated on concepts such as gender, uh, the colonized notions of nations or categories as developed, developing, traditional or modern. So we are trying to understand something or we're trying to understand things through lenses that are sort of structured not to see the things that they are trying, they're claiming to see. We have uh, these ideas of rights and obligations uh, in uh, which do not uh, sort of, again, map onto the way in which or the ways in which indigenous, colonized, racialized uh, peoples have uh, sort of articulated their interrelationships. And this has led to, among other things, the breakdown of human interaction, as well as the breakdown of the uh, sort of environment and the climate, and we've got sort of climate change rising waters. So essentially what we're doing in many cases is we're taking people's experiences and trying to transpose them through preconceived categories, assimilating them into terms that are then put into work, but they're not seeing the things that we are trying to make them see. And this leads me back to my initial sort of framing question. What is our why? Why are we doing this research if we're not actually seeing as well as we could be the experiences we are trying to research, the world that we are trying to research? So the coloniality, colonialism, uh, sort of uh, modernity um, relationship 
is almost reliant than one could uh, uh, sort of posit on the commodification of knowledge. So rather than actually producing knowledge for the you know, making the world better, we are actually producing knowledge that is more or less commodified or commodifiable. So you have what I call the research industrial uh, complex, this produ uh, production of uh, publications that relies very much on, on free labor, on equal international research uh, partnerships and a long history of harmful research. As Linda Tuway Smith uh, um, argues, she says research is one of the, is probably one of the dirtiest uh, words in the indigenous world's vocabulary. In one of her lectures, Eve Tuck tells a story of how white Canadian researchers would regularly visit uh, indigenous communities to collect vials of blood from indigenous peoples without their consent and without care, and they would pay them $1 each time. A particular child called that $1 their blood money. Sabelle Ndulovu Gatsheni uh, describes researching as the activity of undressing other people so as to see them naked. Emanuela Gray asks us to always understand that research knowledge production cannot be neutral. And often by trying, by claiming objectivity and neutrality, we obscure the political and ethical dimensions of research. So I suggest that to think about research, we need to sort of unpack. Uh, so if we're thinking about research and decolonization, we need to unpack the what, the how, the who for, what we value, and what exactly it is, is it for? So the ontology, epistemology, normativity, axiology, and teleology, and I'll come back to uh, those, you know, how those map onto other bits of our research uh, in a few uh, sort of seconds. So I want to sort of very quickly think through or think about or talk about how research has uh, sort of been uh, exceptionally harmful. So there are lots and lots of examples. I'm only going to mention a few. Uh, Marion Sims, for example, uh, the, it's called the father of gynecology. And he, a uh, lot of his research was based on experimentation on enslaved women without anesthesia and without their direct consent. Um, Robert Koch, who's called the father of immunology, set up uh, concentration camps essentially in East Africa, where he tested uh, on the indigenous population uh, a chemical called atoxyl, which contained arsenic, trying to find out how effective it was as a cure for sleeping sickness. It was known that this um, chemical would cause blindness, severe sort of reactions, and even death. Uh, when he perfected it, he brought it back. So he uh, he was German, brought it back to Germany uh, uh, and sort of commodified it, marketed it. Um, the Tuskegee syphilis uh, experimental study uh, involved the um, sort of treatment, so to speak, of uh, or the injection of um, black subjects or black men with, uh, so they were being studied, about 400 black men were being studied. They were deliberately left untreated so that doctors could be, could study uh, syphilis. Uh, they were told, the subjects of the study, all black men were told that the, they were being given a, a cure. Most of them uh, died horrifically. Um, 
Then we've got Henrietta Lacks, whose uh, stem cells were taken without her consent, again, commodified without her family's consent. Uh, the Kamloops um, Residential School in Canada, the Indigenous Residential School, where uh, very young children between the ages of four, <coughs> excuse me, and 15 were taken from their families. Uh, in, um, in the past year, uh, it was discovered that there were on there were mass graves on that uh, particular property and several other mass graves in residential schools have been discovered. And this was based also on sort of research around educational research around the best way to provide education for indigenous peoples. In the current day, we have studies on FGM, we have studies on child soldiers, we have, uh, there was a study in Nairobi, uh, paper was released in 2020, where the subjects of the study were left without uh, wastewater and water for about uh, 10 months. What we have therefore, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, is a long history of over-research communities in a context in which the presumptions uh, uh, sort of around the time are that the, these over-research communities are not, so they fall into this hierarchy, so the, into the bottom of the hierarchy of uh, humanity. So the underlying questions that I sort of raised earlier, the ontology, the epistemology, normativity, teleology, axiology of these studies affect and continue to affect the design, care, research questions that are being put forward, the very, as I put it, why of the research. So if we as modern subjects breathe coloniality all the time and every day, how then is our research uh, continually being shaped by the breath of uh, modernity that is constitutive of coloniality? How do these uh, sort of questions around who we are as human beings and where we live as you know, the earth or the planet upon which we live, how does that affect the very research that we do, the very sort of, uh, um, languages, vocabularies, concepts upon which we rely and how do we try and break out of those. So there is a paradox here. Um, and this is why I kind of try to trace the, my examples of this sort of harmful uh, research from a period of racialized enslavement till 2020, that we think that as you know, time continues to move on, there is progress being made. We are becoming more aware of the ways in which race permeates the structures of our research projects. And there is increased urgency to address in that. So, you know, you keep on saying, well, we have to do better. We need to sort of decolonize this and decolonize that, or we need to uh, be aware of, you know, questions of diversity or inclusivity. But what is actually happening on the other hand, so on the one hand, we are uh, being sort of becoming more aware, trying to be more inclusive. On the other hand, there is an increased pressure to deliver and uh, lots of people in higher education uh, will uh, sort of relate to or will be able to sort of testify to the fact that uh, the publish or perish uh, is increasingly becoming publish and perish. Uh, and therefore, this pressure to deliver 
indirectly relies on racial inequalities. It relies on all sorts of inequalities. And you see this paradox apparent in things like budget spreadsheets where addressing salary inequalities of uh, partners in the global south, for example, means shrinking the number of outputs that can be achieved within a fixed project uh, budget. So metrics and commodification essentially will continue to produce bad ethics. And these bad ethics rely on these sort of vocabularies, these uh, concepts of humanity that have always been harmful and continue to, to be harmful. So how do we move beyond uh, research ethics as a form of litigation protection uh, and think through uh, this, you know, paradox, this research paradox. We are more aware of this racial inequality, but we are still more, we continue to be reliant on these sorts of inequalities to produce outputs. That brings us back, you know, brings me back to the question that I started with when we use the word decolonization. If we're thinking of decolonization as this, these sets, uh, this set of strategies that seeks to repudiate the introductions of these colonial conditions of life, this colonial ways of um, sort of ways of dehumanization, dispossession, these ways of thinking, being, and living in the world, how exactly do we then talk about decolonizing our research? Uh, and I suggest that maybe we cannot do that, but I'll sort of give a few uh, sort of suggestions in the next few slides uh, and then close. And one of the reasons why I suggest that we cannot think that far at the moment is because we are often bound by the standards of the discipline. We are bound by the structures of the university and the world in which we live, work, study, uh, the world in which we breathe. But how then, so, you know, if my suggestion is that there is, or to think about decolonizing our research means we need to think beyond the very sort of form of the research itself. What can we do in the meantime? What do we do? And this is why I always suggest, let's start with the why. Why are we doing this? If we're researching, as I said, if we're researching because of the amount of money we think we're gonna make from research, then that's probably, we've probably chosen the wrong profession. But a lot of times we do want to make the world better. Uh, and that uh, if, we, if we then see that it is difficult to do so, from within the way in which um, the ways in which we are researching the requirements that they have given us, that we can sort of work, uh, think about those rules and unpack them a little bit. So going back to you know questions of you know ontology, the what question, how do we know question, who is it for question, what do we value? We need to think about all of those things and the products of you know how coloniality slash colonialism has produced this world at every single bit of our uh, research project. So at the very beginning, how are we forming our questions? Questions of uh, knowledge production. <clears throat> Who are we choosing as partners? What's the relationship? What's the power balance between uh, the partners? Who's designing the research? Who's delivering the research? Who's doing the analysis? What form of outputs are we thinking about? Do they reproduce these inequalities of this uh, colonial world or do they unpack that? Do they 
disrupt that. So essentially, what does disrupt all of this is the question that we should be, or is one of the questions that we should be asking at every stage, not at the end or in the middle, because there's a tendency I often see where people talk about decolonization once they've set up their research project. They know the question, they know the partners, and they think, well, around the time I'm thinking about outputs, I'm going to think about decolonization. But we need to think on a more macro scale. We need to sort of think about are the theories that we are resting on, the theoretical frameworks, for example, are they seeing the people, the lived experiences that we want to research? How do we then bring in or enable theorizing from the outside? Are we uh, thinking of our research as, you know, there's a universal standard, I'm going to try and force uh, <clears throat> other lived experiences and knowledges into this universal standard or subjugate them to this standard. Uh, Escobar asked us to think, Arturo uh, Escobar asked us to think about or embrace the pluriversity, uh, pluriversality of epistemologies and ontologies. Um, <clears throat> therefore, we need to rethink who we're relying on, on as thinkers, especially when those thinkers are sort of directly uh, involved in creating these hierarchies of humanities. What vocabularies are we using? What scalations, what questions, what concepts are we using? Essentially, as Dalmia uh, suggests, we need to think about theorizing about uh, as a sort of system of fostering caring, caring for each other. So that's humanity and the earth. And that to me is what is your why? If the why uh, of research, why we're doing this research, why are we doing this question? If it uh, sort of sits outside of caring for each other and the earth, then we are always going to come back to these questions of, you know, uh, decolonization and colonial knowledges and colonial logics and this uh, sort of uh, harmful um, outcomes of research. So we need to think about who sets the research agenda, who picks the question, what's the framework, what's the methodology, who are the partners in thinking through uh, these uh, sort of, you know, what is decolonization in relation to all that. So as I start, uh, you know, as I said at the start, I'm thinking with an anti-colonial frame rather than uh, sort of one of decolonization. And that's not to say, you know, decolonization is relevant. It's just, I think because the word, <clears throat> excuse me, the word has been co-opted a lot, I then struggle and has been conflated with, you know, uh, an EDI approach. I then struggle to sort of, uh, use that word to articulate what exactly uh, it brings to research. But I think essentially for me, it's about an anti-colonial reflective practice. All the questions that I have outlined is about thinking how our research, what we do in its sort of theoretical framework, in its methodology, in the very research questions, who we partner with, the outputs we produce, who we fund, uh, who we're funded by, sorry, uh, you know, the conversations that we have, how all of this can produce different visions of being, doing, thinking that do not reproduce the harms of the past. So the way, ways in which we can disrupt this world of broken bones, broken bodies and broken souls. As Deborah Bird Rose tells us, 
ethics of decolonization reverse or sidestep temporal and spatial forms of punctuation, replacement, and exclusion. They embrace the coexistence of the peoples who share this place and embrace the present moment as the time in which all of us share our lives. These ethics expand the present, enabling it to become a real domain of moral action. And sort of to uh, rephrase her, to think about decolonization in our research is to think about doing research in a way in which we do not undress uh, the people who we are researching. To think about research so it doesn't be, it no longer continues to be the dirtiest word in the indigenous vocabulary. To think about decolonization in a way that doesn't, uh, to think about research, sorry, in a way that doesn't uh, produce broken bones, broken bodies, and broken souls. To think about our research in ways that those communities that have been misused by research have the space to become the centre of their own lives once more. And that's it for this episode. Don't forget to like, rate and subscribe and join me next time where I'll be talking to somebody else about researchers, development and everything in between.